Welcome to this late hour. A look at the world through the lens of scripture. I'm your host, Casey Knowlton. For most of us, March 2020 was just like any other month in recent memory. We were going about our lives, working our jobs, raising our children, pursuing our dreams, and trying to make the most of things. And then the world stopped. With the escalation of the coronavirus, the countries of the world shut down. Churches and schools closed, jobs were moved into the home, toilet paper became scarce, and within a matter of days, things changed forever. Before COVID-19 hit, I had been working as the setup technician for a mega church, running around the giant campus, setting up different events and meetings for five days a week. Every day I'd put over 10,000 steps in my pedometer, but I didn't mind the sore feet and the running around that came with the position. My children were attending the child care facility connected to the building, so I could see them whenever I wished. Options for ministry were opening up as the church planned to expand with more campuses and upgrade its existing ones. And yet, well before the virus came, I began to notice troubling things within the church. The emphasis on social justice and diversity became the core focus to the point of idolatry. Activism took the place of evangelism. The scriptures frequently compromised to align with politics, one of the pastors even recommending Robin D'Angelo's white fragility to the congregation as a type of spiritual formation for white people. The most devastating blow personally came when I sat down with another pastor to ask about pursuing a residency program that was starting. I was told very matter-of-fact that being a white male lowered my chances of consideration. Being in conflict with the direction of the church, the arrival of COVID put all plans of changing things on hold. My job shifted from setting up for various events to walking a mostly deserted building, endlessly sanitizing door handles and toilet seats. The childhood center closed with the kids being sent home to be with my wife, who had been forced to work from home. Eventually, I was forced out of work myself altogether due to the child care center being unable to guarantee my son back due to distancing restrictions. And so it became my responsibility to watch him at home for a time. During that season, I spent a lot of time looking online and in the Bible concerning the end times. I began to realize that the hour had already been late, the pandemic being just a part of the progression of things towards the end of the age. The urgency continued to build that I should be shouting to the heavens, the day of the Lord is fast approaching. And before long, the podcast was born. But what if I'm wrong, people ask, and the Lord tarries? To be clear, I've never declared to know the day or the hour of Christ's return. To do so would be foolish, not to mention heretical. To restate my conviction, I don't know the day. And so if I'm wrong and the Lord does tarry, the more time there will be to share the good news of Jesus Christ. It's really a win-win. Whatever happens, there's either more time to share the gospel or to witness all things set right upon the coming of our Lord. Obviously, I don't think he will tarry for long. If I did... You wouldn't be hearing the sound of my voice. It's why on today's finale of Season 1, I want to revisit five key points made in prior episodes. I will lay out these points that concern the lateness of the hour, 
followed up with three additional points on what I believe we should be doing as believers during this time upon the earth. So let's dive back in one last time this season to our present age in light of Scripture. Point one, we are meant to be watching. Going back to our first episode, it's important that we reestablish this basic yet fundamental fact we are supposed to be watching for Christ's return. Matthew 24, 42-44 Therefore be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Also, consider the parable of the ten virgins. Five were wise, bringing enough oil for the lamps, and five were foolish and did not. While they were away to buy more oil, the bridegroom came, and they were shut out from his presence. Jesus ends the parable saying in verse 25:12, Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. Mark 13:33, Take heed, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. Luke 12:35-36, Be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast, so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Going back to Matthew 24, verses 36 through 39, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Yes, back to Genesis again. Jesus compares his second coming to the coming of the flood, the first global judgment compared with the second. If we go back to the account of Noah, we see that God commanded him to build an ark, giving him all the specifications. In faith, Noah obeyed the Lord, and he and his family were brought safely through the flood in the ark. And just as Noah had to prepare for the coming judgment, we also must be ready for what is to come. But how can we be sure that he is coming soon? This brings us to the second point. Point two, we can know that we are in the last days. It's important for us to remember that we are not waiting for the last days, but that we are in them already. Hebrews 1, 1 through 2. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Or 1 John 2, 18-19 Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. So as a church, we are in the last days, but are awaiting the end times, or the tribulation period, which is mentioned in Matthew 24, and in the book of Revelation. The question becomes, how near are we to the end of these days? Or to the beginning of the end, if you will. In 1 Timothy 4, 1-2, Paul states, But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with the branding iron, 
2 Timothy also speaks of the last days. In chapter 3, 1 through 5, it reads, But realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Paul is warning us that it will become more difficult. Now, I'm no prophet, but these two scriptures references sure sound like everything we see going on today. And if the last days began during the time of Christ and the apostles, then what Paul is speaking of here in Timothy seems to suggest that escalation of evil. Things continue to get worse, with people turning away from the faith, believing in false gospels, and an increase in godless behavior. Verse 5 stated, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, which sounds very much like what I experienced personally at my former church. The woke ideology that is taking over much of the church has the trappings of godliness, clothed in false virtue, activism pushed to the name of Christ, though it denies the very power of the gospel, the only true source of change. For to make any significant change within a culture, you must start first at the level of the heart. The only thing capable of changing the human heart, the human condition, one cursed by sin and death, is the power of Jesus Christ crucified and raised from the dead. And so, we continue to see an escalation in false gospels, which brings me to the third point. We see strong evidence of increasing birth pangs in the world. Romans 8, 20-22 states, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Here Paul is referring back to the fall of man in, you guessed it, Genesis, and that the creation has been groaning with birthing pains since the beginning until now. I will once again put the link to the pictures showing the contractions during labor and that showing the natural disasters from 1900 until now. They are eerily similar. Listen to these clips about natural disasters in our times. From 2016 to 2019, meteorologists saw record-breaking heat waves around the globe, rampant wildfires in California and Australia, and the longest run of Category 5 tropical cyclones on record. The number of extreme weather events has been increasing for the last 40 years, and current predictions suggest that trend will continue. But are these natural disasters simply bad weather? Or are they due to our changing climate? For all of you watching on PBS and around the globe, a warm welcome to BBC World News. The number of weather-related disasters has increased five-fold in the past 50 years. That's according to the World Meteorological Organization. On average, an event linked to weather, climate or water hazard has killed 115 people every day since 1970. Many of those events can be blamed on climate change, but disaster management is improving. The United Nations said on Monday that natural disasters surged dramatically over the past 20 years, mainly due to climate change. 
Major disaster cases have almost doubled compared to the period between 1980 to 1999. According to experts, the future may greatly be threatened by heat waves and droughts. Christ also references birth pains in the Olivet Discourse found in Matthew 24, 4-8. He states, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And these are all but the beginning of birth pains. Jesus suggests here that things will get progressively worse before the end comes. It's like the classic statement goes, the night is always darkest just before the dawn. We need to be sober-minded and clear-thinking, asking the Lord for discernment during these times we find ourselves in. Remember that when all the climate alarmists start shouting about the end of the world, that the Lord is still sovereign and is still on his throne. Regardless of what percentage man has or has not affected the environment, the scriptures indicate that birth pains will increase. So let me suggest once again that much of what we are seeing happening upon the earth is not climate change, but birth pains of a creation whose groans are escalating because the day of the Lord is drawing near. So do not be caught off guard, for you have the truth. 1 Thessalonians says it best in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Here, Paul seems to be suggesting that the Lord's coming should not surprise those believers who are awake. This goes back to my point that not knowing the day or hour doesn't mean we shouldn't be watching. Paul was urging the believers in Thessalonica to stay awake and be sober-minded. Friends, we should not let the events of the world catch us off guard. Know the hour you are living in. Here there are reassurances that Paul gives that the destiny for the believer is life. So as things do continue to worsen in our culture and around the world, if you are a Christ follower, remember to whom you belong and that the dawn is coming. If you are listening today and have yet to choose Christ and to surrender your will to him as your Lord and Savior, don't wait another minute. He is gracious and compassionate and ready to receive those who call upon his name. But his patience will not last indefinitely. Do not risk eternal separation from him and his kingdom. Take his free gift of salvation by asking him into your heart. Point 4. God has been revealing special treasures of the faith to the world. Matthew 18, 12-14 
What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. God does not desire that anyone should perish. He has provided the way of salvation through Jesus Christ for all those that would believe. It is why I think he has been revealing amazing treasures of the faith to the world in this late hour. Some of these things we've already discussed on the show, such as the likely remains of Noah's Ark in Turkey. There was also all of the incredible scientific evidence that I discussed with Dr. Scripture related to DNA evidence, pointing back not only to Eve, but to the post-flood world with the three wives of Noah's sons, to whom we are all descendants. There were many other notable discoveries mentioned in that episode also. In addition to those is the overwhelming amount of evidence that supports the Hebrews having lived in Egypt with signs pointing not only to Joseph, but Moses also. There has been pre-Phoenician proto-Hebrew language found, which strongly suggests that Moses would have been able to write the Torah, which many scholars have dismissed. It seems quite clear that the true Exodus route has also been discovered, along with the site of the Red Sea crossing. The most impressive treasure that was once fenced off and even guarded by armed gunmen is the real Mount Sinai. There are signs of the golden calf altar, along with the altar and pillars of Moses. The mountaintop is distinctly blackened, unlike any other mountain in that region. It suggests that when the presence of the Lord descended upon it as a consuming fire, as mentioned in the Exodus account, that the top was physically darkened. There are many other notable finds in this area of Saudi Arabia that align with the biblical accounts, including a massive split rock, which is almost certainly the rock of Horeb that Moses struck and the water flowed. Over in Israel, there are incredible archaeological finds happening all the time. Not long ago, they had found the seal of the house of David. Near the Dead Sea, more ancient scrolls have been found of biblical books, i.e. the Dead Sea Scrolls. Additionally, two or more strange sites have been discovered, called by many locals the White Sand Dunes. Upon a close investigation, one will find large ashen shapes that appear man-made, as if a small city were suddenly turned to ash. If we read our Bibles, we'll find that right in that area, thousands of years ago, Sodom and Gomorrah were consumed by fire and brimstone, along with three other cities that the Bible mentions. What's more, you will find literal brimstone embedded within all of the ash shapes, small balls of sulfur so pure that it cannot be explained by science. These balls of sulfur can be lit on fire with a simple match or lighter, turning into a charred molten pool before one's eyes. The most impressive and important artifact, though, in my opinion, is the Shroud of Turin. Now, some of my Protestant listeners may scoff at the idea that this object is genuine or too Catholic to be trusted as authentic. I would caution any of my listeners who feel this way to consider that the Catholic Church did not come into possession of this artifact until the late 80s. It has been passed down through a long family lineage, very possibly through the Knights Templar themselves. Also, keep in mind that this is the most studied religious artifact in history, having gone through much scientific scrutiny, with all kinds of tests having been done on it. For those who don't know, the Shroud of Turin is a burial cloth showing the imprint of a crucified man matching the description of Christ from the Bible. There are many incredible facts about this ancient piece of linen that strongly point to its authenticity. 
I will save those details for a separate episode next season. Suffice to say, even though we've known about this item for hundreds of years, it has only been in the last 40 that it's been widely studied and publicized. So, we have incredible amounts of new scientific data supporting a literal Genesis account, Noah's Ark, evidence of the Hebrews in Egypt, the Red Sea Crossing, Mount Sinai, the Rock of Horeb, the remains of Sodom and Gomorrah, and the burial shroud of Christ. Why has God allowed these treasures of the faith to be rediscovered now? I think the reasons are threefold. He has given them to the church as an encouragement, a gift, as a reminder of his faithfulness. It shows that we should not lose sight of his faithfulness and that he keeps his promises. Second, he has provided them in grace for the unbeliever. Just as Jesus allowed Thomas to see the spear and the nail wounds left on his resurrected body, he has provided these treasures to win more souls for his kingdom. Lastly, he has done this because the hour is late. I'm reminded of Matthew 16, 1-4. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. What other signs are needed, friends? Every one of the areas mentioned can be seen on YouTube or even visited in person, which, given the history of many of these sites, is a miracle in and of itself. Now the shroud is locked away, but has already been studied scrupulously. In regard to the sign of Jonah that Christ mentioned there, I think this can also apply to us today. Jonah was a prophet of the Lord, who, when told directly by God to go to Nineveh and to preach repentance, he disobeyed and fled. As most of you probably remember, he was swallowed by a giant fish before being spit out three days later, at which time he decided to obey, fancy that, and went and preached repentance to the Ninevites. They did end up repenting and gave their lives in service to the Lord. In the same way today, make sure and pay attention to what God is asking of you. For those outside of Christ, look at all that has been revealed and repent while there is still time to do so. Point 5. We are nearing the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Matthew 24:14. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. If I were forced to throw out all but one of my observations today, this is the one I'd keep. Scripturally speaking, it is the strongest case for why I see that we are nearing the end of the age. Christ tells us that the gospel must be preached in all the nations, or to every ethnic group, before the end will come. I touched on this idea in the second episode of the season. I had made the point that we are accelerating getting the Bible translated into every language. Here's audio from a more recent video that I think sums it up nicely. Since the foundation of Wycliffe in 1942 by Cam Townsend, the rate of Bible translation has increased more rapidly than at any other time in history. But in 1999, Wycliffe's leaders realized that at the speed we were going, it would still be at least another 150 years before Bible translation would be started for the last language that needed one. How many people would perish between then and the year 2150, 
without reading God's word in their language. So the leaders of Wycliffe felt God calling them to adopt a new goal for accomplishing this mission. They committed to do everything they could to see a Bible translation program in progress in every language still needing one by the year 2025. In 1999, there were about 3,000 languages that still needed a translation and were still waiting for a translation project to start. So in order to accomplish Vision 2025, Wycliffe's leaders realized that we had to do things differently than we'd done before. We began seeking new partnerships with like-minded organizations. For example, we're now intimately partnered with the Jesus Film Project, Faith Comes by Hearing, and many churches like yours. For each translation that we produce, the Jesus Film Project aims to produce a translated video of the Jesus Film, and Faith Comes by Hearing strives to create an audio translation, which is especially helpful in areas like Papua New Guinea, where most people are illiterate. Churches like yours offer financial partnership, prayer for us and for the local people that we serve, and occasionally take short-term mission trips to serve in the communities alongside us and to see what God is doing through their partnerships. All of these partnerships help us to accomplish our work at a faster pace than was ever previously possible. We also began to focus on training and equipping national translators to take what they learned and help other nearby language communities receive scriptures in their language. Also, especially in Papua New Guinea, where there are so many languages, we look for opportunities to work in cluster projects where multiple language groups work together to produce translations in several languages simultaneously. We also hope to start a cluster project with four additional languages in Papua New Guinea eventually, once we are there. In many instances, after the completion of their own Bible, native translators, or as we call them, mother tongue translators, will go to neighboring language groups as missionaries and help with translation projects there. Since we adopted Vision 2025 back in 1999, the number of languages still waiting for a translation to begin has dropped from 3,000 to less than 1,800. For the first time in history, we now have more active language projects in progress than the number of languages that still need one to begin. At the current pace, we will see the last language receive God's Word within our lifetime. How incredible to think that we are only a few years away from potentially seeing a Bible translated into every language. Folks, there has never been a time like this in human history. And this video is from 2018. I imagine the number has shrunk even more since that time. And if that doesn't excite you, then let me play another bit of audio from the Finishing Fund, a group of ministries that has partnered together to reach the unreached people groups of the world. When I think about Jesus' command, Matthew 24, 14, Gospels preached in all the world is assigned to all ethnic peoples, and then the end comes. I used to think that is a lofty goal, you know, a platitude. It's not a platitude. It's an actual defined finish. And it's in sight. By God's grace, we can finish this mission in our generation. I believe that before Jesus comes. Of course, we're going to finish. The coolest thing is I feel like we're on the brink of it. I think it'll totally be in my lifetime. By the end of 2022, if God is with us, every single unengaged group, they will all be engaged with the gospel. If we had enough resources today, we could see in the next few months, we could see every people group on earth have somebody in their midst declaring the goodness of God. Miracles, signs, wonders, things just start happening. It's like God is just moving through places where we never expected. 
We're just at the last moments to see this whole thing done. We're running the final lap. We're finishing the Great Commission. We're hastening the coming of the day of God. That's why we need to work very hard. Upon the Holy Spirit, we weak, but we can pray. Receive the Holy Spirit. God will be anointing us. Preach the gospel. No one can stop, even the government. Disciples in every nation. Disciple in every nation. Disciples in every nation. Disciples in every nation. Can you imagine it? We could possibly be within a year or so of having reached every people group with the gospel. That is the fulfillment of the Great Commission, friends. It is possible that God may take some time to seed his word throughout these groups, but even so, the end is very much in sight. As faithful Christians, I believe we can be fully confident that the end is very near. If you are still unconvinced, remember 1 Thessalonians 5, 4-6. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Additionally, a great resource outside of this podcast for those wanting to dig deeper is a book titled, And Then the End Will Come, written by Douglas Cobb, the founder of The Finishing Fund. I'd highly recommend you read it or listen to the audio version of the book. He makes some of the points I've made in today's finale, along with many I have not. Let it be a Christmas gift for yourself, for the end is in sight, friends. I hope this fact encourages you during these desperate times. This brings an end to my review of the main points from Season 1 concerning the lateness of the hour. Before I end the episode, I think it's important, given the days we find ourselves living in, for us to consider how we should be living our lives. I think Peter says it best in his second letter, chapter 3, verses 10 through 18. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth, in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish, and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all of his letters when he speaks. In them, of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. There are three takeaways from Peter's final words here that I think are vital to how we should be living our lives as we watch and wait for the Lord's return. The first, get right with God. If you have unconfessed sin, confess it to God and to someone you can trust. Sharpen your spiritual disciplines. Up your prayer life, Bible reading, and devotions. 
The things that you've been holding on to that you know the Lord is asking you to surrender, give them up, so that he may find you serving the light and not the darkness. We need to be bright lights in these dark days, shining on a stand, not hidden under a bowl, as it says in the Gospels. And do all this so that you may love God and love your neighbor more completely. The two most important commands, as Christ states in Matthew 22, 36-40. Peter also talks about not being carried away by error. And as we've seen throughout this season of the show, there are multiple warnings in the scriptures to watch out for false teachers. Friends, if you are in a church that is teaching falsehoods, get out. Run. Just as I shared from my personal experience, if your church is following a similar path, confront your church leaders in love. And if they are unwilling to change course or be moved, then leave. Find a Bible-believing church, whatever your denomination or tradition may be, that is doing its utmost to preach the Word of God in an uncompromised fashion. How can you know? Here are three things to consider. Are they attempting to stay as close as possible to the original meaning of the text? Do they have a strong emphasis on the gospel of Christ, crucified and risen for our sins? And what is more important to them, evangelism or activism? Please, please find a good Bible-believing church. If you are having trouble with this, pray and seek the Lord's wisdom. You can also email the show and I may be able to help. If you are listening and can't understand why being woke would be a hindrance to the gospel, well, I will dive into that specifically more next season. The third point is, we must turn the brunt of our attention to missions and reaching the last people groups with the gospel. Peter states, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. By his grace and provision, we can do this, friends. We are so close to the finish line. Now, I cannot sit here and promise you that it's going to be easy. For if we are as close to finishing as everything seems to suggest, then we will be met with resistance. But remember these words from the book of Hebrews 12, 1-3. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Dear friends, it has been a great honor and privilege producing the first season of this late hour for you. It is my hope to return in the spring of next year with more content and, Lord willing, a greater frequency of episodes. Don't forget to leave a five-star review for the show wherever you may be listening. Please email the show at thislatehourpodcast at gmail.com with any questions or suggestions that you have for our next season. You can also find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Casey Knowlton, as well as wherever you listen to podcasts. I will be putting a link in the show notes for the Finishing Fund and will be giving any proceeds that come to the show this month back to the UUPG Fund, who is partnered with the Finishing Fund. Also, look for a link to a wonderfully encouraging presentation about the Star of Bethlehem, which I will also post on all of our social media. In the spirit of Advent, I'd like to end today's show with a Christmas blessing by reading from Matthew 2, verses 1-12, through 12, as a reminder of the Magi who kept such faithful watch for the Lord. 
Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Stay on the alert, dear ones. He is coming, and that right soon. And Merry Christmas. Until next season, God bless.